0: This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser along with Tim And we covered some of today's virus headlines. You've heard it. Uh, We continue to see the drug, big pharma companies uh, going for regulatory clearance for their vaccines. Uh, New York State statewide daily hospitalizations jumping the most since April. One system in the New York metro area that was on the front line last spring dealing with COVID is the Atlantic Health System. They've got seven hospitals in New Jersey. They've got about 17,000 team members, uh, and uh, they are really covering much of the state of New Jersey. So great to have back with us Brian Granulati. He's CEO of Atlantic Health. Health System. He joins us on the phone from Morristown, New Jersey. Hey, Brian, good to have you here with Tim and myself. I think we talked with you at the end of April. It was not a good time. Uh, where are we today in comparison?
1: Well, thanks, uh, thanks for having us back. Yeah. Um, it's quite different uh, for us than it, than it was uh, back in the spring, particularly the time that we spoke. Um, you know, we were up uh, over 900 patients in our hospitals per day. And uh, today, Um, We're at about 225. Um, The pace of increase has been uh, a lot slower than we experienced in uh, April. And we're also seeing fewer patients in our intensive care unit and fewer patients on ventilators. And that's because of some of the uh, great strides we've made in in learning about this virus and and how to take care of patients um, differently. We've also set up a program called Hospital at Home, and that really has allowed us to keep more people in their homes, uh, getting, uh, uh, oxygen, uh, treatments and, and other needed treatments. So all in all, uh, the virus is back. Um, uh, it is, uh, really endemic in the community,
2: mm. but we're
1: not seeing that crazy
3: growth that we saw over a three to four week period in the spring. Brian, are you concerned at all that you will start to see that that crazy growth again as we see the cases rise around the country and then also the positivity rate, at least in the New York City area, above 4% in the last seven days and rising? Yeah. You know,
1: um, it's interesting. All of our modeling that we're doing um, does not show us uh, hitting those uh, levels again. Because you got to remember, we were doubling uh, the number of, of cases that we had in our hospitals every uh, two to three days uh, for about a three or four week period. And this has been a, 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 a slower uh, uptake um, starting probably at the end of September, beginning of October. And um, you know we're seeing things plateau a little bit, then go up a little bit. The big concern we have, though, is, is what human behavior is going to be mm. like. Um, and so we are expecting to see a bump now in probably uh, four or five days after the Thanksgiving holiday.
3: Brian, how are your team members right now? Carol mentioned that you have about seventeen thousand of them, and I know they've been working around the clock keeping us safe. How are they doing?
1: You know, this is this has been tough on um, all people who work in in healthcare. Um, You know, I know there's a general fatigue in the country right now uh, regarding this crisis, and we do have uh, light at the end of the tunnel with the vaccines, and we can talk about that. But our team members have been at this for a long time, and even when our case count went down um, over the uh, summer months, um, we were still preparing for, um, uh, I called it coexisting with COVID, but we were preparing for what we're seeing right now. So um, while they're ready and, um, you know, we're taking great care of our patients and we're keeping our team members safe, um, they are fatigued and like all of us would like to see uh, life get back to a bit more uh, normal than it is right now.
0: It's interesting what you said about it, you know, it's been a a slower uptake. And why do you think that is? Is it because when the numbers do start to pick up that we've all like kind of been there before, understand what we need to do to kind of back off? So we all go back to social distancing, wearing masking, you know, wearing masks. Is that why it's slower, Brian?
1: Well, when we first saw this occurring, I used to say follow the train lines. Because Mm -hmm. we have, you know, organizations in northern New Jersey Mm -hmm. um, and uh, right off the train line. And when you did the mapping on that, you could see that high concentration. And um, so so working from home, not having as much transit is is obviously a a difference right now. So that's that's part of it. The other part of it is the measures that were taken by um, the state of New Jersey, the state of New York. You know, I think our governor here in New Jersey has done a, a very responsible job of trying to balance um, the health of the citizenry, the resources that we have available to care for them uh, and the economy. And, uh, you know, we're all doing our part to keep the economy open because we don't want to go back to that time where everything was shut down. The dilemma, though, strikes on your point about masking and other things like that, because it's it's your personal responsibility as a citizen to take these things seriously and one of the reasons in New Jersey that we're seeing, uh, you know, uh, a better performance right now is because people are taking that seriously. But you can track back these these outbreaks to gatherings to events where people didn't do that, yeah. and, and that's really where personal responsibility steps in. So I always tell people, if you want to get back to where we were, um, you want to not have restrictions in place. Just do simple things: wear a mask. You know, use common sense about uh, gatherings and, and social distancing and uh, wash your hands, because we have such good news about vaccines right now that, um, you know, we could have a much different summer uh, if we really work hard this
0: winter. Hey, so, Brian, one thing and before we move on to kind of talking about a vaccine and the rollout of that is. The types of covid patients that you're seeing it does sound like it's not as severe but are you seeing a lot of long um, of covid um, long haulers I'm just curious what you're seeing in it and the demographics of who's getting the virus has any of that changed
1: yeah we're seeing um, uh, a much younger uh, population um, testing positive mm-hmm. right now and um, you know we're we're seeing fewer patients uh, go into the hospital but your point about uh, what happens afterwards uh, is an important one. We've opened something at Atlantic called the COVID Recovery Center and uh, we've had that open for about two months now. What we're trying to do is to create a medical home uh, Mm -hmm. for these patients who can't seem to shake some of the uh, impacts of this virus. So I'll give you a a quick uh, example. We've got some young uh, patients who um, are seemingly doing well um, but when they exert themselves in any manner, their, their oxygen levels just drop dramatically. And um, we can't figure out why. Um, and we're trying to understand that. The same thing with this concept of brain fog. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got so many patients that just don't feel right and uh, are, are suffering from that. So this is turning into a real chronic disease. And, and one of the things when I, when I talk about this, particularly to younger folks who Think that they're bulletproof on this is that this is a very difficult virus, and while you may not um, see the dramatic impacts uh, on you like we saw uh, in New York and New Jersey in the spring, ventilators and everything like that, this is still something that you have to take very seriously. And uh, we're hoping to get that message across. But in the meantime, we've created a service that we think will be a medical home for patients who really are taking this on as a chronic disease now.
0: Yeah, I don't know if any of you have seen, I think it was at 60 Minutes did a piece on some of the long haulers. And it was, you know, one was a runner and, and it's just young people and just their life has been, you know, turned upside down and it's devastating that couldn't walk. So it's, it is, Tim's definitely something that has to be taken seriously. Yeah, and like, it's something
3: that just affects everybody mm-hmm, differently. Exactly. If you get it, you don't know how it's going to affect you. And that's something we all need to keep in mind. Um, Brian, I want to talk about the vaccine and, and how you're planning on, mm-hmm. on rolling it out and distributing it once it becomes widely available. How do you do that at Atlantic Health System?
1: So um, we've had uh, planning underway for uh, the last several months uh, to make sure that as soon as uh, we are able to, we will get this vaccine in people's arms. Because the development of the vaccine has been nothing short of remarkable, because what the government's been able to do is to hedge companies' financial bets on this vaccine, and allow them to follow the science and get it done safely, but at the same time, begin production on these. So we're gonna start to see, um, uh, assuming uh, this moves forward like we expect this week and uh, over the next couple of weeks, uh, vaccines uh, being sent to each of the states and then um, uh, being delivered to sites like uh, our Atlantic Health hospitals. and then uh, we have plans to uh, to uh, get those into the arms of people, and that's going to be the real challenge. We're going to have to set priorities uh, at the beginning, and so we're looking forward to the guidance that we're going to get from um, the government this week. Um, states have put together plans, but generally, it seems like it's going to be healthcare workers first, and uh, we think that that's really important. And then uh, working on people who have uh, other vulnerabilities and uh, people who are older. Uh, Because the goal here is to obviously get as much vaccine out uh, uh, into the general public by probably the middle of the year. uh, And that's going to be important. But the key thing is people having confidence in taking
0: it. Yeah, no, I know. I think the CDC, right, I think they're voting actually today on who will be first yep. in line for a vaccine. So we we will be looking out for that headline. Hey, Brian, thank you so much. I know your world is crazy and you're so kind to always find some time for us. So stay safe and we wish you well. And I'm, I'm sure we'll be checking in again with you. Uh, over the next couple of months. Brian Granulati, Chief Executive Officer of Atlantic Health System on the phone from Morristown, New Jersey.
1: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio.
0: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Masser along with Tim Stanovic. And we know running a political campaign, it's about fundraising. It's about getting voters. It's about building infrastructure and support. It's also about building out campaign technology, which we know is critical for Donald Trump and the Republicans back in 2016 and for the Democrats this past November. So let's get into a great story in the magazine. It's about the digital machine that Democrats need to keep winning. Bloomberg Business, uh, Bloomberg Business Week national correspondent Josh Green, excuse me, is joining us. He's on the phone in D.C. along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber on the Access Line in Brooklyn. Um, Joel, this is an interesting story. I mean, technology, we saw the Republicans use it. Now it seems like Democrats have figured it out.
4: Yeah. And who better than to write about uh, to write about the story than, you know, a, a, our great MA and a reporter, uh, Josh Green, <laughs> um, who also headed to the title correspondent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He, he's multifaceted, that Josh Green. <laughs> yes. um, but that was sort of the root of it, because he had done a story for the magazine in, in 2017 about Mobilize America. Um, but the the biggest uh, theme here is not only that marriage that I'm sure he's going to talk about in a second, but you know, it, it, there's a there's a line in the story where in today's story where he yesterday's story where he throws back to the the Obama moment um, hmm. back when Obama w- was uh, reelected and sort of the the tech um, prowess that was was bestowed upon Democrats then but you know there was a there was one thing that was missing which is it didn't have any lasting ability and what josh has found here is that you know we're we're beginning to see a marriage here that may be able to become something of a machine how about that, Josh? Can I can I just take every word <laughs> out of your reporting uh, and we're done now. say it for myself? But over to you for more you know, M&A. I like, the idea that, I like the idea that I think this
2: might be the first M&A I've ever reported on. So, <laughs> so, well just, it, let's put it to it. The, the reason that I was prompted to report on an M&A for the first time in my like 10-plus year Bloomberg career was that, as you said, I wrote about one of these companies back in 2017, um, because they were a startup by a couple of young millennials who were so appalled that Donald Trump had gotten elected and the Democrats couldn't beat him, and so they wanted to develop new political technology to reach the kind of voters that Hillary Clinton couldn't reach and hadn't turned out. Um, you know, So so they called me up, actually, a, a, a couple of weeks ago and said, hey, you know, we, we've built our company into 100-plus people. We're now going to merge with a big Democratic tech company called Every Action. They were being acquired. Um, but to me evolution of this company and its acquisition was really emblematic of something i think was really important in this last election hasn't gotten enough attention uh because democrats frankly spent the month since since trump was defeated kind of bickering and shooting at each other which i think has taken away from um what i talk about in the lead of this piece was that the democrats organizing and fundraising prowess driven by this kind of political technology has produced more than 80 billion votes uh, for Joe Biden. And any hope that Democrats have of of broadening their governing coalition and winning races in the midterms and that sort of thing is going to depend on this machine that was built. And the fact that these two political technology companies are coming together and joining means that Democrats organizing and tech abilities are going to grow even larger. Now, as Joel alluded to, um, Democrats were plagued For years and years and years, even when Obama was winning, they were plagued by a fundamental structural shortcoming in the way that they did politics. And that was that every time you had uh, a big presidential campaign like Obama come along, he actually had to build his own technology Mm. internally. They had to kind of start from scratch, you know. It's like getting a job at Bloomberg, but in order to get there, I have to, like, build my own car to to sort of drive there. I mean, one of these problems where when you step back and look at it from somebody outside politics – it seems sort of absurd that nobody thought to fix this earlier, but this was a big problem. Obama yeah. built a big tech operation as soon as his campaign ended. It all dissolved and went away, you know, and, and Hillary had to start from scratch. So what these companies done is basically take the technology building outside campaigns that can grow and exist and innovate, um, you know, beyond a single campaign cycle. I think the fact that Democrats turned out 80 million votes, even while they didn't achieve all they wanted to, shows how powerful this was and how powerful it can be moving forward.
3: So, Josh, I mean, you describe this as a Salesforce like platform for liberal campaigns and causes in um, the company mobilize when these two companies together. I mean, what is the actual technology that they have? What are they able to do now?
2: Well, they do a lot of things. What was interesting about Mobilize, which I first wrote about, was they looked at Hillary's loss and they saw, all right, she performed really badly among uh, millennials and really badly among Black voters compared to Obama. Why? And what they figured out was that the traditional ways of organizing—you get a list on a piece of paper, you go out and you knock on doors—didn't really reach those populations either, because you know they're transient, like millennials, or they move around a lot, and so. They thought that, well, look, the one way to reach everybody, everybody has a cell phone now, whether you're young, old, black, white. Um, they built the technology through an app. And this is something that's scaled. And they tested it out in 2017. I wrote a big feature for Businessweek uh, about how they were doing it in the Virginia off-year elections. It worked wonderfully. And the party, to its credit, recognized this and spread it all across the country in the midterm election, uh, in the midterm races, which Democrats won handily. Uh, I think 20 of the something like 26 Democratic presidential candidates from this past cycle used the technology. So what it really is, uh, you know, one of the founders described it to me as an engagement funnel. You know, it takes you have all these sort of hyper excited new to politics activists who people were out in the women's march uh, doing March for our lives, not necessarily things that were campaign related, but suddenly they're inspired and they want to get involved. These apps and this technology helps funnel that initiative, that eagerness to participate and connects them with a local campaign that can actually use their help. Uh, that's really what we saw with Joe Biden's campaign. The fact that Biden really was kind of in his basement. He wasn't out there campaigning. And yet through this use of technology and being able to kind of connect people, they managed to turn out 80 million votes and help Biden to defeat Trump. I, th- I think that's a critical piece of technological mm evolution that's going to be important going forward for both parties, but especially for Democrats.
4: So, Josh, let's spin this forward. We've got, you know, a uh, Georgia Senate race here on the horizon. After that, we're going to have some midterms. Like, when are we going to see sort of the fruits of this marriage and, and how are we going to be evaluating them?
0: i just got about a minute, Josh.
2: Well, you, you... I think I think we're already seeing. I mean, there are people on the ground. There's lots of volunteers. I was talking to one of the mobilized founders who said that the engagement, the, the volunteer engagement around the Georgia Senate races is even higher than it was in the midterm elections in 2018. On the other hand, Republicans have their biggest engagement driver, and that's Donald Trump. And it sounds like he's going to be he- heading down there in the next week. Um, so, you know. Both sides, this this won't come as news to anybody, but both sides are just trying to turn out every single vote they can because it looks like this is going to be a very close pair of elections. I think if Democrats are able to rekindle the outpouring that Joe Biden received, they're going to be in pretty good shape. Uh, We just don't know yet whether Democrats can win um, or or excite people with Trump not on the top of the ticket. We're going to find out on January 5th.
0: All right. Well, good stuff as always, Josh. Thank you so much. Uh, who knew? Political MA reporter, also Bloomberg Businessweek <laughs> national correspondent. He can do it all. He can do it all. Josh Green, anything you want to ever know about politics and the campaign trail, man, you've just got to read uh, Josh's stuff. Of course, author of the book that explains the 2016 election outcome. Where we're talking about Devil's Bargain, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump and the nationalist uprising. Uh, Josh, of course, on the phone from D.C. and Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber on the uh, access line in Brooklyn. This
1: is Bloomberg Business Week. With Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio.
2: For Secretary of Treasury, I am really pleased to be able to nominate Janet Yellen. No one is better prepared to deal with this crises. I wish it weren't as much of a crisis, future Secretary.
0: And of course, that was President-elect Joe Biden just earlier today nominating Janet Yellen, former Fed chief, to be the next Treasury secretary. And I really do think this Biden economic team, Tim, is really one of our top stories of the day and certainly at this hour.
3: Yeah, it is. It's a, it's a lot of firsts. Not only does it include Yellen, of course, but Neera Tandon as mm-hmm. well. And if she would be confirmed, she would have a lot of firsts to, to go along with her as well. And it's, I think, exciting to see for a lot of people because President-elect Biden has said he wants his cabinet to look like America. And it seems like he's making good on that promise.
0: Yeah, really. When he was announcing all the people, very, very diverse. Let's get some thoughts from our Bloomberg News politics editor, Wendy Benjaminson. She is back with us on the phone from Washington. So, Wendy, I mean, it really does look like in general and certainly with this economic team that Joe Biden is thinking about uh, diversity and thinking about what America looks like and what his team needs to look like.
5: Yes, absolutely, Carol. I mean, he is... um, he is making a point about them being diverse. He is certainly showing them to be diverse, and there are many, many firsts, as as you said. You know, um, Janet Yellen would be the first female Treasury Secretary. Cecilia Rouse would be the first African American to head the Council of Economic Advisors. Neera Tandon is an Indian American who would lead the Office of Management and Budget, although women have led that office before. Um, so it's um, so he really is working on that. Now there are some. Um uh, Representative Jim Clyburn from South Carolina who feels that there aren't enough African-Americans being selected yet, but there's still a lot of names to go and we'll see where that leads.
3: Wendy, I want to uh, hit on Neera Tanden for a second, because it does seem like if there is, is one person here who is seeming to get a lot of flack from both the right and the left, it, it's it's her. And I'm wondering what the chances are of, of her being thrown in there um, because the Biden team needs someone not to be confirmed, someone to be rejected <laughs> by Republicans. Well,
0: you know you politics, the, the, Wendy. Is is you know how this works. <laughs> this?
5: Right. As well, if you ask the Biden team, of course, they are 1,000 percent behind her. And they, you know, did not want to shirk from nominating someone they believe to be highly qualified, even though she has irritated Republicans um, to no end. And the highest, the second highest ranking senator, John Poon, today said, you know, pretty much not going to happen and um the lindsey graham who said who chairs the budget committee which would have to first confirm the director of the office of management and budget um said it's going to be a real uphill climb for her but their reasoning is not that she's not qualified um it's not anything else it's that she has tweeted insulting things at Republican senators, and I think anyone who's been on Earth for the who, last four
3: years—yeah—who else is would tweeting? tweeting? I to um, say, who else? Who does that remind a, you of? Republican tweeting insulting has, things
0: does that a bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> two so, wrongs don't make a right. I'm yeah, just going to say it. If, that is right, Carol.
3: <laughs> <laughs> We're parents, exactly. Um, so, I, so I do wonder though—is I mean, I mean—is there somebody on this list who who you think faces better chances or worse chances of getting past Republicans if Mitch McConnell and Republicans hold on to the Senate?
5: Right. Well, I do think Janet Yellen will have almost no problem getting confirmed. Um, you know, she was confirmed to be Fed chair by a Republican Senate, and senators really don't like to admit they're ever wrong. So if they confirm her once, they'll <laughs> confirm her again. Great point. Um, and, um, uh, and, you know, she's well-respected. Her politics may not agree with their politics, but there's no question she's respected. She's top-notch. She's, you know, just don't see that one happening. Your attendant may be the one that gets tossed back. She is the only one so far that everybody has said, hold the phone, this may not work. Mm. So she's really, that's going to be the fight to see if Biden decides it's really, really worth it to have that fight. And he may.
0: You know, I just want to mention, you know, a couple of headlines uh, that have crossed um, the Bloomberg terminal. Bill Barr, you know, saying that the Department of Justice hasn't uncovered widespread voting fraud. I just find it fascinating that these kind of headlines are still crossing and then we've got, you know, the president-elect putting together his team. I mean, it's just, how do you make sense, continue to make sense, Wendy, out of these kind of two Washingtons right now?
5: Exactly. Well, I think it's 90 percent one Washington and 10 percent another Washington. I think really there's one person in town who believes that Donald Trump won the election. And that's Donald Trump. Um, the uh, I mean, his own attorney general, as you said today, said he'd seen no evidence of election fraud to a to an extent that would change the results of the election. Bill Barr did just leave the White House. We're waiting to find out if he left with his job or he left mm. you know, to wow. carry a cardboard box out of the Justice Department, we don't wow. know yet. Um, we don't know, but um, but uh, Trump's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, came back and said, well, Barr doesn't know what he's talking about. We have tons <laughs> of evidence and he won't look at it, and um, that sort of well. thing, so no, I mean, everyone, even these, con- these senators I was just talking about are talking about confirming Biden's picks, even though they will not call him the president-elect or acknowledge that he won the election. So that's that's where we are right now. Yeah. And and,
3: (laughs) Wendy, we are seeing another headline cross the Bloomberg from the Associated Press that says that Barr has appointed Durham special counsel to keep investigating the Russia probe origins under the new administration. What are the implications of this for for president-elect Biden when he becomes president Biden in January?
5: Well, this is a big decision president-elect Biden will have to make and his administration. And we should watch very carefully who he chooses as attorney general as a signal to where that decision will go. Does he want to spend the next four years relitigating the Russia probe, the Trump, you know, and everything that Democrats feel the Trump administration did wrong and and investigate your political opponents which is always sort of anathema in American politics or it used to be. And or does he want to as he said throughout the campaign heal the country, unify the country and move forward focusing on the economic recovery and getting us all past the pandemic. So I think, you know, there was talk that someone like Barawa, who used to be the U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, might be the attorney general, not so much anymore, which does signal that maybe he doesn't want to, you know, spend the next four years investigating mm. Donald Trump.
0: It's fascinating. My understanding, just reading the AP right through, I guess uh, Barr saying that uh, Durham's investigation narrowing to focus more on the conduct of FBI agents who had worked on that Russia investigation. So it is kind of fascinating to see that that could, 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 could continue, excuse me, into the next administration. Um, Wendy, Wendy, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Wendy Benjaminson, she's politics editor at Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from Washington, D.C. That will be fascinating if it carries over right to a Biden administration. Yeah, and he'll have uh-huh. serious
3: choices to make about whether he wants to end it or keep it going because there are implications for both.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I do get the feeling he wants to move forward. So we shall see. I'm
3: in my cord.
4: Yes,
0: indeed. Just about 11 minutes left to go in the Tuesday trade. It is time for the drive to the close. Nice to welcome Sarah Malik. She is head of Global Equities, chief investment officer of uh, Global Equities over at Nuveen. They've got roughly $1.1 trillion in assets under management. And she's joining us on the phone from San Francisco. Sarah, nice to have you here with uh, Tim and myself. Um, let's talk a little bit about what we're seeing in the markets because it does feel like there's some enthusiasm, some risk on, once again, back in the trade. What do you make of it?
6: We think that the market basically is setting up for a return to normal. We have a nice setup for 2021. Once we're past some of these near-term bumps in the road, you know, the elections behind us, we likely have a divided government, which is market-friendly. We have a vaccine coming, potential stimulus, low interest rates, low inflation, all of that's very good. We do think 2021 will be a focus on earnings growth. So 2020 was about valuations expanding and driving the market. 2021 is going to be about earnings growth driving the markets. Now, in the meantime, we do have concerns. Obviously, we have a huge spike in the virus, and we're seeing some economic shutdown. So the yeah. next few months are going to be bumpy, but we're setting up for a nice period past that time.
3: Uh, Sarah, we'll talk about that in, in just a second. But I'm <laughs> seeing in your bio right now that you went to Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo. That's where I'm from, so it's great to talk to a fellow. Uh, Former resident of San Luis Obispo, it's a it's fantastic a place. Yeah, go Mustangs! Go Mustang. Exactly. <laughs> I grew up going to those soccer and, and and basketball games when I was a kid. It was so much fun. It was so nice. What do these next two months look like? These bumpy two months, if uh, you know, we have, potentially the president is is not going to concede. We have no idea if he will go to the inauguration. Do markets care about that?
6: I think that's more noise because the markets do realize that we will get through that. The main concerns for us over the next couple of months are really. How bad is the economic slowdown because that resets the bar that we recover from? So how low does that bar go before we finally have that reopening? And that, of course, depends on how this virus continues to go. Now, there could be some upside if we got stimulus during the lame duck Mm -hmm. session. But our view right now is that you likely don't get that until the first quarter. So definitely a rocky couple of months and the market will stay volatile uh, around uh, that
0: kind of information coming out. Well, you know. Oh, good. Did you want to say something? No. Oh, San Francisco, how does it feel right now with the virus? Definitely quiet. You yeah, know, it's,
6: it's definitely California is having a lot of issues. San Francisco is slowing down. We moved back to the purple tier. Things are closing again. So, you know, it's starting to feel a lot more like March and April
0: around here. So, as an investor, yeah, I mean, I do feel like we understand a, va- a vaccine is coming, right? We can, at this point, get a little bit of a timeline and understand maybe maybe we're back to normal by late spring, maybe by summer. Um, Having said that, how do you play the market at this point? We constantly talk about rotation. But again, tech was interesting again, this, you know, on this Tuesday. So I'm wondering how you see it, uh, especially from a global perspective.
6: I mean, November was an interesting month because the market's up about double digits for the month. So really, we expect the market most likely to take a breather as we go through this volatility. And we're less about the rotation at this point. Cyclicals have had such a nice rally. We know growth stocks were very crowded. They gave back a bit. We're more focused on more of a mild risk on environment in 2021 Mm. and focusing on earnings. So it's not, we think it'll be less about, is it growth? Is it cyclicals? Which one do you want to own? It's about owning those companies in any of those areas that can have strong earnings growth. So areas like healthcare, where the election's behind you, as the yield curve starts to gradually steepen. are there financials that we like and in growth and technology sectors which ones look more attractive like google looks more attractive maybe than amazon because google has not had the run that amazon had this year so being more selective within the sectors rather than making that larger macro trade of do i want to be in growth or do i want to be in value
3: Carol and I were talking about Airbnb just a few minutes ago, and just the massive number of IPOs that we've seen this year, and the way that December is shaping up to just be the end of a huge year for IPOs. Why are so many companies right now saying this is the right time to raise money?
6: I mean, I think, you know, uh, the markets have been strong, Uh, you know, companies like Airbnb obviously had their own secular tailwinds, Um, you know, those could accelerate as more people feel comfortable staying in houses going forward as they travel and, and the way that we travel changes over time. You know, I think access to capital uh, with, in, with low interest rates has just been interesting in general in terms of M&A um, and debt that companies are taking on. So I just think there's a lot of you know capital coming into companies. All that's very positive, uh, especially with the market returns that we've seen year to date.
0: So I, you know... I don't know how much you guys talk about this, Sarah, but the disconnect between Main Street and Wall Street, and you know, Tim and I were talking about it off-air that it really does feel like the small business community, the mid-sized business community, has been left behind, and I know. A lot of that isn't publicly held, um, but we talk about it being the backbone of the economy. How many discussions do you guys have at Nuveen where you're seeing this disconnect between people who feel okay if they're in the markets or other asset classes versus those who are not but are really important to certainly our society and our economy overall and what that means potentially going forward?
6: I would say that's a bigger discussion almost on Main Street. So I hear more about that from individuals who are investors and clients who are, who are concerned. Mm-hmm. You know, internally, our view has been that this recession was event-driven. And if you look at history, they tend to be deep and short-lived and have these pretty fast rebounds, which is what we saw. And because it's based around one event, which was COVID-19, once we start to see a path out of that, the market tends to rebound quite quickly. Uh, you know, I think in the small business space, we're actually big fans of small caps as public companies because they were pretty recently at about two decade lows in terms of valuation. And we think they'll have a lot of operating leverage coming out of this cycle. So, yeah, you know, we do like small companies, but we do think that things are going to change in terms of which ones are successful and which ones are the survivors and even new industries that may pop up because of um, what's happened in this pandemic. But it definitely is a concern and all that cash that's on the sidelines. A lot of people left the market and March out of fear, mm. and now they're having trouble trying to figure out how to get into the market. And that's why most of these downdrafts, you see people buying on the dips as they're trying to get back into equity.
3: Sarah, I'm eager to get your take on Biden's economic team and, and what the market is saying about it. We saw today that he's officially nominated Neera Tandon for OMB, Wally Adamo for Deputy Treasury Secretary, and of course, for Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Um, what do investors think? And just got about 40 seconds.
6: Yeah, the investors basically have been pretty positive so far on it that Janet Yellen is fairly market-friendly, regulatory-friendly, and so I think people like this economic team. It's more moderate. It's in the middle, and that should, again, be a positive
0: and less noisy for the market. All right, good stuff. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Sarah Malik, uh, head of global equities over at Nuveen, $1.1 trillion in assets under management on the phone from San Francisco. Yeah, big Go Mustangs. Go Mustangs. (laughs) God, it would be nice to be in California, wouldn't it Yeah, it would be. Do you go back there much?
3: I used to. I mean, this will be the first Christmas that we don't go back in a long time. Yeah.
0: Well, you'll get back
3: there. Yeah, we will. Hopefully in the
0: summer. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.